leaving Swain's Force Recon team to risk their lives to recover him. In the end, the terrorists had shot Swain through the chest, and Friel came back a shell of himself. The terrorists had tortured him in a way that the term post-traumatic stress syndrome did not do justice to. Worse, he had felt betrayed by his own kind. When they returned stateside, Nightrunner reported himself and the system went to work on him. Now Swain was dealing with a new Force Recon team, one without Nightrunner. How could he do that? Nightrunner could track anything, even insects. Once an officer had a man like that in his platoon, he knew the meaning of words like vital, crucial, key, and, yes, indispensable. And Friel. Once they had finally gotten clear of Iran, it didn't take a psychologist to see that Friel was damaged goods. All you had to do was look at the wildness in his eyes. Friel was now on medical furlough. Psychopaths, they called it. Swain wondered if he would ever return to active duty. No, he decided. Henry Friel would never return. Beneath the Streets of Boston, 09 September 2001, 1837 hours local. After he returned home to the mean streets of Boston, Henry Friel had begun riding the subway system daily because he liked the atmosphere. The question that he woke up today with was, how many people do you have to kill before you are a serial killer? He figured four. Two was too few. Three would be a triple homicide. Friel had a pocket full of money, yet he couldn't afford to get off the train either. Not for the want of a nickel, but for fear of himself. So he rode the subway day after day, worried he might never return to the Marines. Riding, riding every day from morning till midnight. Northwest Afghanistan, 10 September 2001, 0805 hours local. Shit! Swain's force recon team used a well-practiced system of one-word codes to alert each other about the presence and severity of danger from an enemy, not including the word shit. Swain granted himself the lapse in discipline. He and Griner huddled in the close confines of an observation post inside Afghanistan. They sat back to back so they could watch in a complete 360. Half a mile below them, a squad of men had appeared from behind boulders. Bouncing ahead of them, a dog darted along a trail hidden by the boulders and rubble of the slope. Swain knew that by noon, the animal would have wrecked their little mission. Hours earlier, Swain had ducked back inside the tent and pinched the soft plastic flashlight clipped to his uniform pocket. The device was no larger than his thumb and less than half as thick, all battery and a red lens. The glow lit up Corporal Nathaniel David Griner. Swain and Griner left the three scientists sleeping and together slipped through one of the Marine Security Force guard posts to cross half a dozen gulches, wadis, coolies, and a couple of valleys one or two ridges, and a mountain. They went as deep into Afghanistan as the darkness allowed. Then, just before morning nautical twilight, about an hour before sunrise, they holed up to watch the day go by. Hidden by camouflage in the shade, they looked for any terrorists from the Al-Qaeda network or members of the Taliban military, considered terrorists as well. Unless Swain and Griner screwed up, there would be no fighting. 
The idea was simply to see whether any enemy troops from Afghanistan had learned of the landing of Swain's group in Uzbekistan. Now they had the dog to deal with. Swain shook his head. Swain did not care so much that the men had come. His job was to see without being seen. The mission was a simple S&W recon. Sit and watch. Take note of what went on within sight and sound. Report any activity or any lack of activity, which was also significant. Overhead, satellites would collect data and the human intelligence, HUMINT, would be compared and contrasted with the SATINT to establish a baseline for tomorrow night's scheduled trial of the drone intelligence craft. So, the men were no problem. The problem was the fickle breeze blowing across the Spartan shoulders, carrying their scent down the slope. The dog might pick up the scent. They would have to cope with the dog and those ten men, ASAP. Swain put the crosshairs of his telescopic sight on the animal. He and Griner were lightly armed. Griner carried the experimental light machine gun called the Brat, a 5.56-millimeter knockoff of the famous 7.62-millimeter M60, a workhorse of the Vietnam War. Swain carried a modified M16, the M4 Chunker, which could toss 40-millimeter grenades from the tube beneath the barrel. Swain scoped the men one at a time, recording their images on the digital vid cam in his rifle sight. They looked as if they'd crawled out of a sack of homemade jerky. Tough, dark, irregular. There wasn't a spare ounce of fat in the whole squad. Tough customers. Lean, hard, and bearded, with no uniformity in dress. They traveled light with weapons, canteens, and what he did not want to see among them, portable radios. He could see at least three handhelds, and perhaps two digital telephones attached to pack straps. Not good. Too much commo to take out. Somebody would put in a call to the cavalry before all the radios could be put out of action. Griner, he murmured into the boom mic, I'm going to paint these guys. No shooting unless I say. They sat close enough to speak to each other without the radio, but Swain used the radio as a way to send a report to higher headquarters. His radio scrambled his words digitally and shot the data to an overhead satellite. The KY-19 satellite compressed the data and shot it as a burst from one relay station to another halfway around the world. The last satellite fired the data burst into a dish above a hole in the ground under Quantico, Virginia. Swain turned on the laser designator attached to the scope of his rifle. By default, it sent out an infrared beam invisible to the eye. Swain switched to a visible beam a high-tech flashlight that cast a candy-apple-red spot no bigger than a nickel at a mile. He murmured his signal for Griner to move out. Griner tapped his teeth twice, rogering without words, and crept toward the ridgeline. Griner had been with the outfit for only one previous mission, which had turned into two. The mission itself had had mixed results. Of course, the attack on the terrorist training site had been too easy, over in five minutes of fighting. But then the terrorists had picked off Freel, carrying him away to the Iranian holy city of Mashhad. The entire rest of the mission had been devoted to rescuing Freel, in keeping with the code of Force Recon. After they recovered Freel, the team no longer existed, except in name. Greiner wondered whether the unit would ever get squared away. First, the months of recovery for the captain. 
physical healing followed by getting his body back into shape. Nightrunner yanked away. Friel shipped off to the Nutcrackers. Until now, Griner didn't think of this as a real mission. Even the name they gave it, Toys R Us, showed that nobody took it seriously. That changed when they saw the men below being led by the dog. At Swain's signal, he backed away from the fighting position. He put down the brat for a second and fitted the pack straps over his shoulders, snapping all the buckles so they fit snugly. Only after he was positive that he could freely move and shoot and fight did he change positions. Then he moved like a force recon marine, sometimes crawling, sometimes walking like a duck, and sometimes, when he found boulders tall enough to shield him, running bent over to get to the ridgeline. Finally, he eased over the ridgeline. He belly-crawled until he could be sure he was well out of sight of the enemy. Then he lay still, checking the other side of the ridge to be sure that nobody had sneaked up from that way. Griner found the shady side of a boulder as big as a man's torso. He put his head into the shade and slowly, ever so slowly, raised his head until his eyes could look over. He poked the muzzle of the machine gun over the hill, keeping it in the shade, too. He picked a group of soldiers below and trained his gun at their knees. Griner figured he would take out three of the enemy on the first burst, and decided it would be a long burst. He reported to Swain in a low voice, Spartan Four in position. Swain had already picked out the terrorist honcho. He walked third in file. He carried both a digital telephone and a portable radio. His body language gave him away as the squad leader. He'd slung his rifle over one shoulder, while the men ahead of him carried their rifles at the ready as they walked point. Swain hit him on